Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue ESV right in front of you. We will be looking at Mark 15, 1 through 15. As we enter this second to last chapter, we are nearing the end. Only, I believe, including this sermon, six sermons left in Mark. He's been a fine friend to us, a great servant of the Lord. And I will certainly miss preaching this, this book, but not done yet. We have Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Before we hear God's word read, let us go to the Lord asking for his help in understanding this text. By your rules, he is your servant warned, O God. Use your word now to warn us of the danger of our sins and to recall us to Christ. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. To picture the unusual scene, the father was overjoyed when he realized that his wife was pregnant with their first child, a son. He resolved never to be an absentee father, but to be always a godly influence in his son's life. The child, however, did not receive his father's fatherhood well. The child would look away when dad fed him his bottle. When the child got older, he preferred his own toys to playing with dad. When his father entered the same room as his child... The boy turned his attention elsewhere, wanting nothing to do with dad. He never thanked his father for providing for him a house to live in, food to eat, and many comforts and blessings besides. He even wanted his mother to help him with the girl he had liked, though his father knew a thing or two about a girl. He didn't want his dad to help him to drive, learn how to drive a vehicle, though his father also knew a thing or two about cars having worked on many of them in his past. 
Though dad made many efforts to be intimately involved in his son's life, the young man wanted nothing to do with his dad. Despite the affectionate care the father provided, the son grew more and more distant from his dad and even hostile to his father, so that when it was time for his son to leave the house, he departed as soon as he could. It's a rather odd scenario, isn't it? The problem that we have in society today is that of absentee fathers, not all-in affectionate ones. We cry for more all-in affectionate fathers, and we cry, we lament, absentee dads. We might even be tempted to think that this scenario laid out is merely the stuff of nightmares. In truth, it is nightmarish, especially because this son illustrates Israel and Israel's rejection of God the Father. The Lord was covenantally committed to the raising and nurturing of his national son, Israel. Having called his son out of Egypt, he was devoted to provide for Israel, to protect his son, to promote his son's holiness. But at this moment, in these verses, Mark 15, 1 through 15, with Christ before the national son of God, Israel rejects God's true son. We see then that much work needed to be done. We see why the Messiah had to come to earth in the first place. We see that the king of the Jews, the true son of the father, replaces rebellious sons with reverent sons of the father. Look at verse 1 again with me. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So I mentioned last week that we do not read from Mark's pen every trial, every encounter to which Jesus was subjected. As far as the Jews were concerned, they had three trials or one trial in three stages. Jesus first saw Annas, the former high priest, which Mark does not record. Then at night, Jesus went to the council with Caiaphas presiding, which we saw last week. And finally, in the morning, here, we read the formal condemnation. And it's at this point that the Jews push Jesus' trial to the next level. They bring Jesus to the Romans. Because it is through the Romans that Jesus will be able to receive the punishment that Jews believe Jesus deserves. It must have been quite early, Mark tells us, probably around 5 in the morning, when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate the first time. Pilate... Again, Mark doesn't record this, but Pilate kicks Jesus over to Herod Antipas, but Herod Antipas quickly kicks Jesus back to Pilate because Herod Antipas didn't receive the entertainment, the amusement that he wanted from Jesus. And so now he sends him back to Pilate for the formal condemnation. Mark summarizes all of this, condenses all of this back and forth, not because it's not important, other gospel writers have these, these scenes, but to speed the Savior to the cross, to hasten Christ to the cross. That has been Mark's fast-paced movement from the start. We've seen it over and over again with Mark's use of the language immediately. Jesus is is going from one place to the next, and the Lord, through Mark's narrative, is, is bringing the Son to the cross. Perhaps that's one reason why Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. It's because Mark is intent on getting to the cross and the meaning of the cross. 
There are different readers. Some of us prefer the action. Others prefer the dialogue. Others, more bold, prefer the slow development of the scene. They love the characters, the the development of the events. They love to, to see pages upon pages of the mountaintops described. And Mark shows us his true colors. He shows us red hues with which he is painting as he is highlighting the cross. It might, it might prove useful for us to consider in short order the man Pilate and this Roman trial that Jesus is under. Pilate had been a Roman prefect since A.D. 27 or 26 for about seven years then before Jesus eventually comes to him. A prefect was an office with military, financial, and judicial control. Pilate, as prefect, had 500 to 1,000 troops at his immediate disposal. And in these ways, he governed Judea. There were, of course, more soldiers brought in for Passover because there were more Jews. They wanted to prevent an uprising, a revolution. Some have painted Pilate as a tyrant, and they're right. He was. He was a very harsh man, and he was hated by the Jews, and he hated the Jews. Pilate tried to show who was boss when he came into Jerusalem, first time, to take his, his office. He came into Jerusalem with images of the emperor, something that the previous prefects had not done. He's just looking for a fight. The Jews were pleading with him for five days to have these pagan images removed. And on day six, when perhaps one would think Pilate relents, no, he brings soldiers in to force compliance. He threw down the gauntlet, threatening their necks with Roman swords if they resist. But he underestimated the Jews' stick their steadfastness, their refusal to have idolatry brought in. This is ironic, given their whole system, and what Jesus attacks. But let's leave that for another time, I guess. They threw down their bodies, exposing their necks, saying, fine, if this is what you're going to do, you're just going to have to kill us. Pilate then relented. At another time, Pilate used the sacred treasury of the Jews to build aqueducts. And when the Jews protested, these men and women were beaten, trampled upon, and some killed. So these and other incidents show that the Jews and Pilate were fast foes. They did not enjoy one another, and they looked for opportunities to stick it to one another. But the Jews hated Jesus. The Jewish leaders, of course, hated Jesus. And Rome was the only way that Jesus could be officially punished. Remember, we saw last week that Jesus is charged with blasphemy. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He clearly says, I am. High priest rips his robe. There you have it. It's enough evidence to condemn him. But that's not really going to stick in a Roman trial. So what if he, if he says he's the Son of the Blessed, if he says he's the Messiah? That doesn't matter. So the Jews twist the charge a little bit in order to make it stick with Pilate. 
had to attack the vitals of the Roman religion, had to attack the vitals of the Roman politics. Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. Well, there you go. That then threatens Roman rule. So we have an all-important question. This question is the essential concern. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? I will spend more time this evening contemplating the kingship of Christ through Psalm 2. But for now, we need to make clear that the Jews had one idea, Pilate another, and Jesus the right idea of what it meant to be the king of the Jews. This term, king of the Jews, essentially meant he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. That isn't too uh, controversial because the secondary question is, well, what is the mission of the Messiah? What is the Messiah sent to do? What's his purpose? And that's where people differed. For the Jews, the Messiah would come to overthrow the Roman system of government. That's why we have men like Barabbas, praised by, by Jews. Here's, here's a man who was in the insurrection, who was bucking up against the Roman system. You have John, uh, the zealot, people who were against the Roman system. So, the Jews believed the Messiah would come, finally, to liberate his people. To liberate his people from a, an oppressive government, subduing the Messiah's enemies and the Jews' enemies, which in this period of history would be the Romans. The irony, the hypocrisy of all of this, was that the Jews accused Jesus of being the king they actually wanted all along. But he couldn't deliver. That's not what he came to do. If Jesus could deliver, then they would set him up as king in no time. But Jesus, over and over again, said that's not what he had come to do. He had come to free people from sin, from the domain of darkness. This is not the Jews' first rodeo. A thousand years before, they wanted a king like the other nations. They, therefore, sought king like Saul. They didn't want a David. They didn't want a man after God's own heart. They wanted a man that looked like the kings of all the nations, tall and and handsome and powerful, influential. And so we see the unfolding of the fulfillment of the son's prophetic words. The house of Israel rejects the true king of Israel. It's truly tragic. And ironic. When he's asked about being a king, Jesus affirms, though a bit strangely. Verse 2, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. I'm not sure if many parents would receive that as an acceptable answer to their children. You said it. Excuse me, sir? But this is not a tactic of evasion. He earlier affirmed to the high priest that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Christ and kingship cannot be pulled apart. If you are the anointed one, if you are the Messiah, then you are king. If you're king, then you're the Messiah. The two go hand in hand. 
The anointed one is the son whom the rulers of the nations are to kiss. As Psalm 132.18 says, it is on him that his crown will shine. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He comes from the Jews, and he is king over the Jews. Not just over the Jews, but over the Gentiles as well. It's not that Jesus is saying, well, Pilate, you said it. I mean, I didn't say it. So I really can't be held accountable for for saying it, and whatever consequences might come about. You said it, I I didn't. It's It's not that. It's more like, you said it, and so I am. That you really don't know the meaning of king of the Jews. Your view is too myopic. It's too narrow-minded. It's, it's closed, and you're not seeing the big picture of what it means to be king of the Jews, what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be the anointed one, the one sent by the Father, what it means to be king overall. We can't say that this is, again, a tactic of evasion because Paul himself says in 1 Timothy 6.13 that Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Pilate knew what Jesus was saying. Yes, I am king of the Jews. But Jesus, in effect, is saying, you know, I'm not taking over your place here on earth. I'm actually soon taking over the entire world when I ascend to my Father and am granted an inheritance of nations, when the ends of the earth will be my possession. Spoiler alert, that's Psalm 2 this evening. Calvin says, It was necessary that Jesus Christ should declare that he was king of the Jews in order not to reject the words of prophecy. There's so much in the Old Testament that says, here's the Messiah, he's going to be king of the Jews, king over creation, and Jesus would be He would not be a prophet if he were to say, well, I'm not really the king of the Jews. You said it, Pilate. Um, I didn't really say it. No, he is fulfilling Scripture. He's fulfilling all the prophecies. Yes, I am son of the blessed, I'm the Christ, and I am king of the Jews. And in verses 3 and 4, Pilate reminds Jesus of all of the many accusations, these many charges that are leveled against him. Now, Mark doesn't detail the many accusations, but we've heard some of them already. It's never pleasant to hear any complaints someone has against us. We think one complaint is one too many. But here, it's not just one thing against Jesus, who, of course, is innocent and righteous. Whereas, in our case, often the complaints have at least a shred of truth to them. Not always, but sometimes. It's not just one complaint. It's a long list of accusations. So many things. Do you hear Jesus, King of the Jews? Do you hear what they're saying about you? What do you have to say for yourself? What's your answer? How will you defend yourself? There's a saying in many homes, asked and answered. Perhaps you've uttered those words. A parent will usually respond this way after he has clearly communicated his will to his children. But his child perhaps has chosen not to hear or has chosen to ignore his father's instruction. And then his ignorance, willful or not, comes to bite him in the bottom. And then he needs 
He needs to be instructed. What was it again? Asked and answered. You've already asked that question. I've already given you instruction. What, were you not listening the first time? Do you think my answer is going to change just because you're disobedient? Or because you weren't paying attention? Well, certainly not. Does Jesus have to change his answer? Does he have to say it time and time and again here? Yes, I am king of the Jews. Yes, I am king of the Jews. How many times did he say it? He's affirmed it. Asked and answered, Pilate. The son is satisfied with his innocence, nay, his righteousness. And so, he chooses to say no more. Silent. Remember, he's also silent because he's fixed on the cross. He came out of the Garden of Gethsemane fixed on the cross. He wrestled with his father. And he was firm in his conviction that the cross was where he needed to go. Nothing was going to steer him off track. Nothing was going to dissuade him. Yes, I am the son of the blessed. Yes, I am king of the Jews. And so he no longer needed to defend himself, but he chose to suffer the condemnation. Fine, if you're not going to defend yourself, then I guess you are guilty as charged. Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer, so the Pilate was amazed. The son's actions never cease to amaze people, do they? Pilate was amazed at Jesus' words, but also at the son's defenseless posture, that he wouldn't offer a reason, that he wouldn't defend himself. Again, as we saw last week, no doubt Jesus could have addressed every single complaint, every accusation. He who is the truth could shed light on all his accusations and show where, where every one of them is wrong. And remember, Pilate was on to the Jews. He knew what they were doing was a charade. So he gave him the opportunity to answer. Give me a reason to let you go. Silence. So he's amazed by the son's words. He's also further amazed, as we see later on in Mark 15, verse 44, he's amazed at how soon Jesus dies on the cross. So we combine these two passages and we say that he is amazed by the person and the work of Jesus. And the person and work of Jesus ought to amaze everyone. But Pilate's amazement did not lead him to faith. He was still a harsh man. We see no evidence that he trusts in Jesus as his king, as his anointed one as the one who ushers in salvation. So we take this as a warning, as a reminder that we can be amazed at what Jesus has reportedly done, we might think. We can be amazed at what Scripture says, but still not have faith. We might even call this a miraculous faith, a faith that sees the miracles of Jesus and wants just the bread, not the bread of life that comes from above. The son's silence should also amaze us, especially since we are so quick in our flesh. We desire to respond to every single charge against us. 
That's the temptation, isn't it? Well, he said this about me, so let me answer it. She said this about me, so let me answer it. The scriptures offer us some guidelines for speech over silence. This is an issue that requires much wisdom. These aren't hard and fast rules, but um, one, one pastor has given us three good questions to ask whenever an accusation or a complaint is, is leveled against us. These are good questions to consider and to talk with a trustworthy friend about or an elder. So the three questions. The first one is, is this situation coming from a misunderstanding or is it coming from malice? If it's coming from misunderstanding then defend, as in bring clarity. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say it exactly like that. I said it this way. If it's out of malice, you might want to consider simply being silent. You might want to consider simply trusting in the God of justice. We're never going to have perfect justice this side of heaven. And... We can have hope. We are confident that the Lord, the judge of all the earth, will do right. And sometimes he, sh- he shows that execution of justice here on earth. Sometimes he defers that until the judgment last day. And we don't know which will be the case for us in any given accusation. Sometimes we then just say, well, it's out of my hands. Lord, it's not out of your hands. I entrust this to you. Another question we might want to consider is, is the cause, the honor, or the truth of Christ at stake? Or is it simply our reputation? Is the cause, honor, or truth of Christ at stake, or is my reputation alone at stake? If it is the former, if it's for the sake of Christ, for his truth, for his honor, for the peace and purity of the church, then we should defend, we should speak up. But if it's simply our own preferences, our own kingdom, our own will, our own reputation, then we can say, Lord, I entrust this to you as well. Sometimes the two commingle. Think of Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. Paul, for a good portion of that letter, is defending himself. But half the letter is an apostolic self-defense. He's defending his own reputation but not for his reputation alone, but because his reputation is tied to the gospel. Because his reputation is, he is an apostle sent to the Corinthians to give them the word of God against all of the false apostles, all those super apostles who are trying to lead astray the Corinthians. And so for the sake of the Corinthians, for their good, he will defend himself. Say, yes, I truly am an apostle. I have the signs of an apostle. I have the word of God as an apostle would. Third question is, is answering, is offering an answer for another person's advantage, for another person's good, or is it just for my own need to be right? I have to let them know that I'm right. They have to see that I wasn't wrong. If that alone is your consideration, then you might want to just be silent. But if it's going to serve the good of the body, if it's going to serve For the peace and purity of the church, for instance, then defend, speak, 
Sometimes you see this in, um, say, street evangelism or just apologetics in general. When you have somebody over at your house or you're talking with somebody and maybe you had a friend and uh, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, has asked a question and has leveled this great objection, I think anyways, it's a great objection to Christian faith. You could be silent. That's your choice. Say, I'm not going to talk to you about that. Or you might think your friend has the same question. Will this friend benefit from my defense, from my speech? That would be good for this friend. Also be good for the unconverted. Or in cases of church discipline, it's good to speak up. But again, for the peace and purity of the church. Cyprian exhorts us to silent, patient perseverance. He says there are times when we should simply just be silent and persevere through the suffering. And he uses Christ as the model, of course. He says, what great patience this is, that he who is adored in heaven is not yet avenged on earth. Let us think of his patience in our persecutions and sufferings. Let us persevere and let us labor and be watchful with all our heart and steadfast, even to total resignation. There are times when we totally resign ourselves and can't do anything about it. It'd be great if I could remove this suffering, this trial, this persecution. But we know that is not the lot that has been cast in the lap of many martyrs, many of the persecuted church. So what they have to do is endure by faith in Christ patiently. You see that while the crowd was shouting, the Christ was content to be silent. So there are times that we should be silent as well. Let us learn this lesson. Let's now turn to verse 6. Read with me. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. What an interesting practice that we glimpse in these verses. Why would anyone release a known criminal before that criminal has done his time? Why would anyone say, here, world, you can have him back? What an odd practice. It appears gracious, doesn't it? Pilate might simply be throwing a bone at the Jews, especially since he might be looking for an opportunity to release Jesus, not believing Jesus to be the Savior, but still innocent, even washes his hands, as if I'm done with this, wash my hands of this man's blood. He might be thinking, if he's the one who presents Barabbas, if he's the one who recommends Barabbas to the Jews, he might be thinking, well, here's a, here's a way to get Jesus released. Because why would anyone want to take Barabbas back? They know who Barabbas is. They know this guy. Why would, why would they want him back? Certainly they don't want a murderer, a revolutionary, back into the world, into the wild, wreaking havoc on Rome. Maybe they do want that. But the chief priests might have been the ones to suggest the name Barabbas for release. And if that's the case, then this recommended release highlights the hard-hearted idolatry of Israel. They are so set in their ways. They're so ready 
to get rid of Jesus, that they would prefer Barabbas. They would prefer a murderer, a revolutionary. And what we may consider a strange practice, Calvin rightly sees as an abomination. It's a miscarriage of justice. Calvin says, the custom at Passover shows us how far men will be led by their foolish devotions. It would seem that the feast was the more greatly honored by the freeing of a prisoner, and that this was considered an act of worship to God. It was merely an abomination. For Scripture says that whoever justifies an offender is as guilty before God as the person who punishes the innocent. They are offending God and openly sinning against his word. To have this injustice, to be part of the Passover meal, the Passover events, as an act of worship, is an abomination. But when you're hard-hearted and you are so focused on killing Jesus, then the trade-off is great. You can have Barabbas. You can have all these unjust, these wicked individuals back into the world. So the Jewish leadership would not take Jesus back. And the priests end up doing to the crowd what Barabbas had done to the people against Rome. They had stirred up the crowd to join their cause. And that's why we hear them say, crucify him. Are you sure? Yes, crucify him, crucify him. And later in another gospel, it's let his blood be upon us and our children. So let's take Barabbas instead. Who is this guy? Who's this man, Barabbas? As I mentioned, he's a murderer. He was a murderer in the insurrection. There were many revolts around this time. We can't pinpoint a particular revolt. But the Jews were always looking for a way to get out, of the th- out from under the thumb of the Romans. And they found a man, Barabbas, to help them. But Barabbas had got a little too wild little too unpredictable, and ended up murdering somebody. Well, that's going too far, Barabbas. How would you like that as a one-sentence identity marker? Murderer in the insurrection. Put that on the gravestone. He was a murderer, a revolutionary. This guy was a well-known murderer. He had a following. He had many supporters. Clearly, this Jewish man, whose name literally means son of the father, ignored the way set forth by a father in the book of Proverbs, certainly ignored the wisdom of father above. He wasn't a kind man. He wasn't a repentant man. They're not asking for his release because he demonstrated remorse and he's changed his ways and he wants to do good in society. They have no reason to believe that. He was a murderous man. And this murder of a man serves as one of Mark's finest illustrations. As Mark drives us to the cross, he is illustrating to us who we are through Barabbas. Mark tells us that later that day, three men died on the crosses. That is to say, Three crosses were prepared. Mark also uses the same word, it's used to Barabbas, for the two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. 
So we have three crosses prepared for three rebels, perhaps three murderers, three revolutionaries. Pilate had fully intended on executing justice on three murderers that day, on three rebels. But Pilate's error was that he underestimated the Jews' hot hatred for Jesus and their preference for Barabbas. Who was that third cross for? It was for Barabbas, the father's embarrassment. But who was hanged on that third cross? It wasn't Barabbas, but it was the father's eternal son, the true king of the Jews. We see the need for, for reverence because Christ took our place. There's replacement in these words, the language of replacement. We are a bunch of Barabbases. This is not to say that he was converted, but that apart from Christ, we are a bunch of Barabbases. He is us. We are him. No, we've not murdered any you know, pagan Roman but we have murdered one another in anger. We have broken God's law. We have not kept it perfectly at any point. When we were in Adam, our spirits joined with the crowd's shout, crucify him, crucify him. It was our justice-denying, holiness-hating sinfulness that put Christ on that cross. As sons of our father, Adam, we rejected the wisdom of Father who is in heaven. We deserved to be scourged. We deserved to have our insides turned out, to have our bloody flesh spilling onto the dust of creation, to have our backs beaten with shards of bone, metal, glass. We deserve to have those nails driven into our hands and feet, to have our bodies suffocating, We deserve to have the wrath of the Father poured upon us in full measure. We deserved to be on that third cross. The, wor- the whole world should be lined with crosses. Every inch of creation should have stakes planted and us sinners punished upon those crosses. That is what the world, apart from Christ, deserves. But the innocent, the righteous, the one who is rightly named Son of the Father, took our place. The one who even a pagan ruler acknowledged committed no evil was delivered to pay the penalty due the evil of our hearts. He replaced us. He was our substitute. He took our place. Praise be to God. How shall we then be? Reverent. Reverent in our worship. Reverent in our works. In all that we do. A life of reverence. A life of of being awestruck by his glory and by his grace. Give your whole life to the Lord in worship. Always praising him for what he has done. 
for who he is. Adore the Son for making you a son of the Father, to making you his child. Worship. Every single day. Worship privately. Worship with your church. Worship with your family. And give your life to the Lord in all that you do, in all your works, even, yes, picking up your cross to follow him. Ask the Father to fashion you into a more and more reverent child of his. That's going to take knowing him more truly. That's going to take knowing your sins more clearly. The more you debase yourself, the more you humble yourself, the more you will see that you are poor in spirit and that you need the grace of God. Ask the Father to make you into his child. He will surely do it, for that is why the Son took our place, that we might glorify the Father. Let's pray. In keeping your word, there is a great reward, O Lord. By your Spirit, grant us the grace of keeping your holy statutes for the glory of the name of Christ, for the peace and purity of the church, and to shut the mouths of the world's oppressors. Amen.